Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Deborah. Now, what you've just heard there is an ad, which is something you're not used to hearing on our podcast. On most other podcasts you listen to, you've probably heard ads quite a lot. But right from the beginning, The Guilty Feminist was a live show as well as a podcast. And that meant we earned money from the box office and we could use that to pay our contributors and keep the podcast going, even as it took up more and more of our time. The pandemic changed everything. We've been able to do only a few live shows here and there over the last 18 months. And our upcoming Australia-New Zealand tour has had to be postponed. And we just don't know where live is at the moment. So it's completely destroyed our business model. Our Patreon supporters have been amazing, but even with them on board, it's been harder and harder to keep the podcast going in the way that we want to. But the good news is, Acast have come to our rescue. They've offered us an amazing deal, which will keep the podcast going for at least the next two years. So we hope you will be on board with the ads in return. Acast have been amazing in other ways too. If I'd known what they would have been able to bring to the party in terms of support and other opportunities for us to grow this podcast and even produce some other new amazing podcasts, I would have made the switch years ago. There are going to be some big things coming your way very soon. So watch this space. We haven't forgotten about our Patreon supporters. We're working with the team at Acast, even as I speak, to set up an ad-free version of the feed just for you. We'll let you know as soon as it's ready and it will be available on every single tier. Thank you for everything. Thank you for listening. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you for sharing the podcast. Anything you can do to rate, review and subscribe an individual episode that you respond to, share it with another person, send it to a WhatsApp group, 
if you think it's important or you think people would like it or you think someone would find it funny, will help us so much. Going out on stage at the South Bank Centre was incredible to feel our community again. So please stick with us, grow with us. And in this new ACAST phase of our development, we hope you will come for the comedy, the community, the activism and stay for much more. That's all from me. Please enjoy this wonderful episode in which Shaparat Kosandi and I talk to Nova Reed and Robin D'Angelo, who coined the term white fragility. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you at an in-person event, Patreon Hangout or live stream very, very soon. I'm a feminist, but this weekend I was invited to a Disney versus Ghibli party. And I decided to go as Maleficent because, sure, she's a villain, but she's not crying out for a husband and going, one day my prince will come, <laughs> completely forgetting that she specialises in slipping rehypnol to women. That's what she does. <laughs> she puts women to sleep. I was like, oh, shit. I was thinking I was so feminist because I'm like, I'm going to be a power figure. I'm going to have horns. I'm not going to be a princess. And then I was like, I don't, I'm not sure she's exactly what we'd call a feminist now. No, you know, my neighbor's daughter dressed up as her for a party and now I'm seeing the whole thing in a different light. I've actually, I haven't seen that film, but that's all right though. You can be a feminist and, uh, drug, maybe not. You can't, you can't. (laughs) I've thought it through. I thought it through from all the angles. I was thinking, how can I justify this? And I ended up going, probably can't, probably don't, probably don't try. Unless maybe if she's an anesthetist, maybe that's a part of the story that was left on the cutting room floor. Do you think? And no, no. The original but, Maleficent, the original anaesthetist. Well, listen. Yeah. Well done on that feminist contortionist work there, trying to make things. <laughs> I'm normally pretty good at going. The reason that's actually feminist is, uh, but on this occasion, you've trumped me. I'm a feminist, but had he been at the same parties as me in the '90s, I think I might have got off with Henry VIII. <laughs> It's the kind, it's the, it was the 90s. It was the kind of thing I would have done. I would have uh, been so entrenched in the Ladek culture that I would think it was probably cool to get off with the worst of the lads and then do that 90s thing of being, feeling seriously diminished by what I'd done, but pretending to all my friends that I found it funny. <laughs> I'll go, I, I didn't even know his name. I thought he was Henry the Sixth. So, uh, that is my confession. Didn't even know he was married. Didn't I didn't know, know he was married. Didn't even yeah, know he was married. And like, Lol. And I was getting off with him and like this girl, she's like looking daggers at me and she's like, look, my name's Anne, that's my man. And I'd be like, I'm really sorry, but you don't own people. I would have been like that. I'm doing, I'm doing a show about the 90s and I am horrified revisiting it about what I thought I was doing in the name of feminism where actually I was harming myself. There was a lot of girl power going around in the 90s, wasn't it? It was a time when what women really, really wanted was a zigger zigar. And we weren't quite sure what that meant, but we knew it had to do with kicking our legs up in a Union Jack miniskirt in the name of feminism. Yeah. And and I honestly, I'm learning so much from young feminists now because when when we were um, in the 90s, like self-care was having a Barocca in the morning. <laughs> no one. If I'd said to my friends that, and <laughs> rummaging around, you know, um, 
for the condom in, in, in your twat. That was self-care. That was, sorry, that's, that was really crude, Deborah. No, it feels no. really strange saying that in my own living room. Yeah. But, it, um, it, it feels like, it feels like one of those things that deserves an audience. Um, well, it was just when I think back of how I thought I was the biggest feminist and as did all my friends. And yet, if I had said something like, guys, I had a one night stand last night. I feel horrible about it. I think I want to stop drinking, start meditating and work on my boundary issues. They would have thought I joined a cult. You mm. know, there would have been no understanding of that. I was so naive in those times because I was either in a cult or had just come out of a cult. So my friends would have thought I was in a cult rightly. Uh, in fact, one night as a young Jehovah's Witness woman, teenager, I remember driving around. We were all overtired and driving around looking for Barocca to give, because the, the thing was to drink a load of Barocca's before you went to a party. I mean, these parties were tame. Um, yeah. And it was, we, was like, we were joking about it. was like we were scoring drugs. I had Barocca in the 90s as well. So that was your high. Orange Wee was your high in the 90s. Yeah, it was like, it was like take a bunch of Barocca and then you'll be able to stay up late. <laughs> oh, God, oh. my life has been so pathetic in so many ways. Oh, and you know, by the way, when you said um, when I was in a cult, I have to say, obviously, I've seen, I saw your show when you talked about that and it, um, it knocked my socks off. The Ladek culture was in itself a kind of cult. Yeah. It was an unwritten rule that you never said how bad you felt. It was all about being strong and pretending you're having fun. A hundred percent that. And I was remember being told in the 90s, you've got gender equality now. Now, if you mention it, you're trying to get um, an unfair advantage. Yeah. And it was really not the thing to be saying any of this in the 90s. But you are right. It was the thing to be falling off bars and knocking yeah. your head on the pub floor to prove what kind of a legend you were. And <laughs> you were just as tough as the boys. You could drink the boys under the table. That was the thing. That was feminism. Yeah. If you could drink them under the table. Um, yes. I'm a feminist. But when people asked me at the Disney versus Ghibli party uh, where <laughs> I had got my Maleficent black velvet purple satin cape, I said, Despicable Daisy does all my cloaks. And I said it very seriously and people just <laughs> roared with laughter at me. But she does do all my cloaks. I don't know what to tell you. Despicable. Di I'm just writing this down she because made, I'll forget. She made me a big show, a tour show one, green velvet with GF in or Guilty Feminist in purple sequence on the back. And she's now made me a lighter, more party Guilty Feminist sequined one because it was too heavy for your average. You couldn't go out on a Friday night and it was for a show, but it was a great cloak, stage cloak. But then I yeah. did need a sort of lighter, shorter cloak. And I now have a Maleficent cape as well. The only other woman I've seen wear a cloak on stage is Madonna. And when she tripped over it, clearly oh. not made by Despicable Daisy. She is so adamant about that. Madonna is a feminist, but if you say that she tripped over her cloak, or she will get very angry. She says, somebody stood on it. I did not trip. I was where I was meant to be and they weren't where they were meant to be. I imagine... That person got very fired. She probably fired them and then rehired them to fire them again. Self-deprecation isn't her thing, Madonna. I, I felt that because she was like the you know female icon when I was a kid and I never related to her because I quite like self-deprecation. I like to sort of sit around and discuss flaws and um, what a twat you've been. And uh, women who were just poised 
and really sure of themselves used to intimidate me. Maybe that should be an I'm a feminist book. I think so. I'm intimidated by poised women. Poised but women I know what you mean about Madonna, though. She's very, you know, I, but she's part of that, you know, pre-90s sort of admit no weakness. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a, it's a systemic thing. I'm a feminist, but sometimes I tell my children that the cat is looking after us all because he's the man of the house. Oh, wow. There we <laughs> are. <laughs> I have I have done that. The What's phrase, the cat's name? Oscar. Oscar. Oscar the patriarchal, maybe the patriarchal, patriarchal pussy there we of are. your house. <laughs> the patriarchal pussy. That's got everything in it. Yeah, so I've had Oscar for 11 years since my son was three and he's been to three different houses with me and he is as loyal as a dog and um, his, he always sleeps on my bed when I had my little girl on my own. Oscar never left my side through all the night feeds. Oh, and Oscar. Our Oscar's amazing. And, and I actually use the term man of the house. And I elevated Oscar's status maybe, by maybe it's using his Maybe it's patriarchy. The patriarchy. Petri- you know mm. what? We will not smash the, pe- the not patriarchy. patriarchy. Because pets are amazing for this. I'm a feminist and... I have two girls and a boy, cats, just to keep the ratio down for Tom. I do need Tom to be outnumbered. Tom Selinsky, my husband, he needs to be outnumbered. So at the moment, the ratio is uh, three to two, and I'm comfortable with that. I'm a feminist, but today was my wedding anniversary, and I only remembered when Tom Selinsky, my husband, sent me flowers, and I thought, ooh, am I just a bad person that I have forgotten my wedding anniversary or am I a good feminist because my identity is not tied up in my marriage? Oh, Ah, well, first of all, happy anniversary. Thank you. I'm doing the Guilty Feminist podcast for it. Yeah, I mean. Date night, he's producing, I'm talking, talking to you. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I feel blessed to be a part of your special day. Is okay. it a special one? How many years has it been? Uh, 2008. So mm, what is that? 12, 13? No, 12, no, 12. That's a long time. I, th- I think after 12, 13, 13 years, 13, you can forget. 13, yeah. It's, and also... It's, it's, it's the unlucky 13th. Tom's going to make me supper after this. That'll do. You know what? You've been together... Twenty-four hours a day for what nearly nearly two years, and so it's not dwell on you that. haven't had that time apart. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so maybe now we're out of lockdown. I think it's perfectly exactly. should be going out without each other. We've had a year, an anniversary year, really. Um, no, we have had a nice time in lockdown. I, I will say that. And Tom's going to make me supper later. It'll be, it'll be fine. But I did. I was like, how can I justify having forgotten my anniversary? I know I'm such a good feminist. I'm not owned by the institution of marriage. Is it the first time you've forgotten it? Do you know, once I forgot, we both forgot, we were on a plane and he passed me a note saying, uh, you were so beautiful. And then we remembered it was anniversary. And I said, if we forget our anniversary, but you're still sending me notes saying you were so beautiful when you don't even think it's anniversary, then we don't need to worry about anniversaries. That's what I said. Oh, I'm a feminist, but I hear that story. I want to cry. And I really hope one day a man passes me a note on a plane and says, you're beautiful. It will happen, but will it be a man you know? <laughs> that That's the question, isn't it? Might be, it? Oh, it might be a woman. Oh, it might be the way you meet your partner. Maybe. Because I, so again, I'm a feminist, but, and I still think I'm thinking one day my prince will come. Daddy, You're daddy. bisexual, though. 
Shaparik. So okay, so I am a feminist, but I still have so much internalized homophobia that I feel extraordinarily shy chatting to women that I fancy. I think it's the way to go if it's an option. Honestly, I mean, just think it through. If you can date women. It's sort yeah. of madness not to. So I think what we should make a project is over the next few years for you to, this is me absolutely imposing this on you, how dare I, but mm-hmm. to iron out your internalised homophobia so that you can have a lovely partner who's a woman because, frankly, women are more evolved generally. Well, I do you know what I found? When I came out as bisexual, uh, and, and I didn't really come out as bisexual, I just started going out with a woman, um, some of my female straight cis female friends were uh, just not cool they were and I've said this to their faces since it's like it's just not cool to suddenly go oh god like they've ever fancied me and that's all they need to say for me to crawl back in the closet because you just don't ah I don't know I was just always so worried about coming across as uh, you know that that guy at a party that's chatting up the girls that no one and none of them wants to go out with him. You know, I don't want to be that guy. I do not think that's going to happen. Okay. Uh, and I think again in the nineties, being bisexual in the nineties was different from now. Um, there were just loads of jokes on friends and things like that, wasn't there? Whereas yeah. now, I think it's it's uh, is this wrong to say the thing to be? <laughs> I'm well, not it, a feminist, but what what have I just? <laughs> <laughs> From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Sharparak Corsandi, and our very special guests Nova Reed and Robin D'Angelo talking about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Woo! Yeah. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White. With me is Sharparak Kasandi, and we are talking about getting uncomfortable with being... Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, I'm slightly uncomfortable using your name, Sharparak, because I've always known you were shappy, so I'm getting yes. used to it. So it's getting... I'm getting... But I'm trying to use it a lot so it gets comfortable because the only way to push past discomfort is to just do the thing. Right? Absolutely. And and you know what? It was quite uncomfortable telling people that that's what I want. So when I told my publishers, um, they were really uncomfortable because I told them too late for it, my, my real Sharpad act to be on the cover of um, K- Kissing Emma, my new novel. And then the onus was on me to make them feel okay about that. It's like, mm. it's okay. I've been shopping for 20 years, but, you know, next time I'll be Sharprak on the cover of my book. And so that looking after people mm. is very much how I feel about my using the name that my par- parents gave me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I have known you for many years, as has the great British public, as Shappi Kosandi, famous yeah. comedian. Now, Shappi Kosandi, famous comedian, who already has this enormous sort of following and brand, it seems like a risky move to change your name at this point in your career. How long have you been doing comedy? I've been doing comedy for j- over 20 years now. And, yeah, and you've been very successful for... You know, a bunch of that time. I have, and I've always been Shappy Corsandi. Um, What's happened? Tell us about this. 
Well, Deborah, let me tell you, I was very much inspired by Thandie Newton taking back the W in her name. And when she did that, it, you know, when um, I didn't even know myself how much I'd compromised my own identity. So I was named Sharparak, which means butterfly in Persian. And then I was teased at school. So in the 80s, it was just not the thing to be have a foreign name. Everyone abbreviated it. And I got teased mercilessly when I went to high school about my name Sharpadak. It was all shabaranks, shark attack, shit attack, shipwreck, all sorts of stuff. And I wasn't having a good time at school. And it felt like my name was said in an antagonistic way to me. Like, oi, chaparac, you know, mm. you're so lame or chaparac. You've just, it, it felt like an insult. And so when I went to A-level college, when I was 16 in 1990, I registered as Shappy. Shappy felt easier to say. It was kind of cute. And no one teased me about it. And it was happy shappy and all of this. And I went on to be stand up and shappy just seems easier. And I became shappy. Then I, I'm older now and I'm a mum and my own children. My daughter didn't know I had another name, right? And then um, as I get older, shappy, it just doesn't sit with me. It's a childhood nickname that became my real name because I was teased about it and it made it easier and less awkward for everyone I came across to call myself Shappy. Interesting thing is how culturally we've moved on. I used to say, I don't want to have to give people a linguistic lesson every time I introduce myself, you know, and I thought that was me trying to appease everyone. Look how good I'm being. Look how how well I'm trying to accommodate everybody. And then during the football, Bukaya Saka, Raheem Sterling, these guys who are from the same area as me, went to the same um, similar schools as I did, but of course they're uh, a couple of generations younger. They don't change their name and they talk about their background and their, you know, hashtag boyfriend Brent. Um, Sarko went to school in Greenford down the road from my school and they wouldn't, they wouldn't call themselves Bob and Ray. They now live in a time where it's perfectly ordinary to have a name that isn't typical or common yeah, or, or usual. Super, super accessible to white people or absolutely and, white people feel comfortable. I didn't give my own children Iranian names because I didn't want them to go through what I went through. But actually, they wouldn't have gone through what I went through because we're all moving forward. And I felt it's important that I, d- never mind my brand, I've never been a businesswoman. I'm sharp at Corsandi and, you know, I'm perfectly happy to be called Shappy. Um, you know, it's like being called Andrew and Andy. I'm fine with that. But yeah, I wanted to have my beautiful Persian name back. Well, good on you. I'm so thrilled that you've done that. And I think it's a beautiful name, Sharparak. And I think it's so elegant. And I think you're right. There was a lovely quote that you said to me earlier today from Dirty Dancing. Yes, yes. So that first scene in, in Dirty Dancing, when at the age of 16, she says, um, it was the summer when everyone still called me baby and it didn't occur to me to mind. And when those young footballers talked about their heritage with such pride, 
despite all the racism, I thought it's my duty <laughs> to reclaim my own identity. And that's why, you know, I, I learn, I learn from, from younger people because culture moves forward and I, I, I'm moving, I'm, I'm running, running up behind them. Well, I'm really glad that it's occurred to you to mind. Um, and that leads us brilliantly into our guests for today. Our first guest today is often described as a force to be reckoned with. She is a TED speaker, anti-racism activist and author who uses her professional background in counselling skills, mental well-being, and understanding of human behaviour to encourage meaningful change from the inside out. Her new book is called The Good Ally. Please welcome Nova Reid. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she is joined by a consultant, educator and facilitator who has worked for over 20 years on issues of racial and social justice. She is well known for coining the term white fragility and for her best-selling book of the same name. Her new book is called Nice Racism. Please welcome Robin D'Angelo. Thank you. Okay. Hello, Robin. Hello. Hello, Nova. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you both for joining us. I am... So excited, Nova, to read your new book. It's on pre-order, so I've pre-ordered it. Thank you. Um, can you tell us what made you write the book and what it's about? Uh, <laughs> uh, the cheeky answer is white supremacy. <laughs> uh, the more in-depth answer is I used to deliver race inclusion workshops and I was working with a creative agency um who was really struggling with with they were a feminist agency as well actually called Patchwork and they were really struggling with matching their words with behavior and so we were helping them be more comfortable with race inclusion and just to really explore what was going on and um whilst I was going through Momentum another person walked through the door at their office that I thought was a member of staff and they happened to be just sharing desk space and it's an open plan office so they could hear what I was delivering and they said you can't sit there Nova's teaching today but you'll be more than welcome to join in the workshop if you would like to and she potted off and said no no I've got things to do and she heard me start speaking and within 10 minutes she came trotting over again with a notebook and said I would really love to join if that's okay so I delivered a three-hour training session and at the end she handed me her business card and she said the publishing industry really needs your work and I would love it if we could have a conversation and meet so we exchanged details and she said have you ever thought about writing a book based on your training and um, I said, no, I can't think of anything more dry. <laughs> Who <laughs> wants to read a book about inclusion? And, and I just thought it was utterly boring. And she said, well, just think about it. So a few months rolled on and she said, I'm a literary agent. And I just wrote something and I added humour and I added, you know, a little bit of autobiography and sent three chapters to her. And she came back almost immediately and she said, this is incredible. I think we can get you a deal. That was back in 2018. Uh, took a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. Initial landscape felt that there wasn't a market for work like this in the UK. And in that time, I've changed and evolved and I've moved from inclusion uh, specifically to anti-racism. And so, yeah, that's the 
the slightly elongated version. Wonderful. Robin, your book, White Fragility, was a big hit and it sort of spoke to a lot of people who I think hadn't really understood about the centering of white people and that even that expression wasn't really commonly used, that to unpack racism we had to be at the heart of this, how does this affect me? And Or, but I need to be very defensive about it. What was it that made you come up with the turn of phrase, white fragility? Walking out of a, a room uh, that I, I was leading a workshop in and just a moment of just frustration, like, ah, oh, that's white fragility. And it resonated within me, that phrase, as a way to capture this dynamic that was so familiar and so consistent and so predictable. It, it's almost like a script. You, and I, I would ask Nova that you can pretty much predict what's going to be said. Um, and To what kind of things do white people say when you go in to talk to them about? Well, there's, there's all the evidence we will offer up to establish that we're not racist and not understanding, of course, that the evidence isn't remotely convincing to anybody who understands racism, that most likely they're rolling their eyes inside their head. So things like, I'm not racist. I had a black roommate in college. I'm not racist. I've traveled. I'm not racist. I speak several languages. I'm not racist. I work on a diverse team. I'm not racist. I'm a vegetarian. No, <laughs> that would have been <laughs> that's a, that would have been a, one of my that's a strange uh, one um, offerings of evidence back in the '90s when I started this work. And when I started this work, I really was taken aback at all of this resistance. And okay, and yet by every measure across every institution, we consistently reproduce racial inequality. And people of color consistently say that we're exhausting to them. So what's going on? (laughs) Um, And because it was so scripted and predictable, and actually one of the things you didn't mention in my bio is I am an academic at this point. So my training is in sociology. And I just began to put it together. How do we pull this off? How do we proclaim that race has no meaning? in societies that are just profoundly separate and unequal by race? Why, what is the mm-hmm. outcome of most white people unable to answer the question, what does it mean to be white? That's not benign or innocent or neutral. And I had just gotten better and better over the years at unpacking that, breaking that down in a way that white people could hear. And being an insider, right? there, there is this kind of place where it's harder to deny when someone who shares your experience is naming that experience. So Nova, what I wanted to ask you about is I know one of the things that you cover in your book is why white people are uncomfortable to admit how we benefit from systemic racism. Can you speak to that a bit and what, you know, what unpack a little bit what's in the book there? Part of The approach I take is around getting curious about our discomfort and when agitation shows up in our body, when we start sweating, when we overheat and getting really curious about the signs that our bodies are trying to communicate with us because our bodies are really wise. So part of me wants to deflect back. And if you've experienced that discomfort before, Deborah, or even Robin, and just ask you what you think that is. And then... Oh, (laughs) I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I think it is. I think... I really, really felt it as I should have last summer during Black Lives Matter coming to a boiling point. It was this 
horrible feeling that you were because you know my close black girlfriends were in so much pain they were kind of radiating pain and the only way I can describe it it was like you know when you can feel the heat of someone's sunburn if you hover your hand above their arm it was like that and I could feel it and I knew that I was part of a system that benefited from the root causes of that pain and because I'd done The Guilty Feminist, I had learnt a lot of what other white people I knew or I could see on social media learning. I just learned it a few years before because people had told me because I was doing a podcast and they were like, you know, they'd write in and say what you're not realising is or why you need more black guesses. So I I had learnt it a few years before. So I I was like, I'm no better than any other. A lot of people saying, well, you're such an ally. I was like, I am no better. I learnt this a couple of years ago. And I'm sure we get things wrong all the time. But I remember feeling so deeply nauseous, agitated day and night. Have I let my friends down? Am I going to be accused of something? Am I in the wrong even just by, you know, should I, what should I do? Like panicked and nauseous. And I remember thinking, oh, this is really good. A lot of other white people saying to me, I don't know, everything I do is wrong. I put the black square up and I'm performative. I don't have the black square up and I'm I'm silent. My silence is violence. Everything I do is wrong. And one of my very close friends, who's uh, a black British woman, said, she said, she said, I was laughing with a black friend and we were saying, yeah, white people really can do no right at the moment. Whatever they do is, is wrong. And I said, it's really important because I think what it is, is the emotional power base is not with us for two weeks. And now imagine that the legal power base is not with you, the fiscal power base is not with you, the judicial power base is not with you, and the emotional power base is not with you. Imagine that. It's shit, isn't it? Like it's shit, just this tiny taste of it. And that's why I think discomfort is so important. But for me personally, I think it's, fuck, I'm benefiting. I've benefited. I'm probably wrong. The things I've said in the past, I've made people feel uncomfortable. People, I'm yeah. I'm a part of this. I'm, a, I'm part of the problem. And I think, you know, Underneath all of that is is a lot of there's a lot of collective shame that happens with racism. There's so much, particularly with a UK slant, there is so much about our colonial past that we don't even acknowledge, let alone address. And we carry the weight of that. So it's not just what we're experiencing as an individual, we're carrying the weight of collective shame. And um we end up going into this state where we're thinking about ourselves, and I'm saying us is in everyone. We're thinking about our perception. We're thinking about what we did or didn't say. We're thinking about how I might have caused harm, how I might have got things wrong. And in the meanwhile, there's black friends, brown friends, people of colour who are suffering. And we we forget to turn our attention and our empathy to the people who need our help. And I think that's the element. If you want to be actively anti-racist, there is no way in hell you can be engaged in this change without experiencing discomfort without experiencing shame without experiencing guilt like trying to avoid all these things is is kind of reductive and like you will experience those and so for me it's like get up get comfortable with it because you you, you're gonna have to hold this stuff you're gonna have to be with this Mm. you're gonna have to reconcile some parts of our behavior or parts of our humanity that we may have inherited or we may enact might not make us feel pretty and we have to be with the dark parts of our behavior and um, to move through them and so for me it's like I welcome that and it's something you have to look at 
I don't think you have to carry it day and night so that you're paralyzed and can't do anything to change it, but you have to look at it. You have to sit in it. You have to dwell on it. You have to reflect on it. You know, as I remember Felicity Ward, uh, who's a comedian that's this therapist saying, avoidance is the maintenance of any problem. And while we sit and avoid it and go, I just don't want to look at it because it's ugly and it's embarrassing and it's shameful and I don't like feeling those things, we maintain that problem. You maintain it. And it's yeah. it's it's ultimately healing work. And with any kind of healing, like you can't bypass it. You have to go through it. And um, mm. you you have to have the courage to do that and the desire. Otherwise, we just keep reproducing racism. Mm. God, this is, su- this is such a powerful conversation. I'm, I'm just... Uh, so many things in the last uh, few months has happened in my life with regard to healing. And when we talk about people feeling uncomfortable around racism, a question that I ask to friends who insist they're not racist is, what do you think racism is? Explain to me what you think it is. Fancying someone who is black doesn't mean that in no other part of your life you've made people feel uncomfortable or you've excluded them. And so to actually talk about racism isn't just, you know, duffing someone up in an alleyway because they're a different colour to you. Or using racial slurs. or or that's what people think. They think using racial slurs. Absolutely, yes. Robin, your book is called Nice Racism. Um, What's that? (laughs) Oh, I have so many thoughts on this conversation. Um, just a few a few comments on, on what was just shared. Um, mm. The status quo is racism. It's not an aberration. It's the norm. And as a white person, I move through societies in which the status quo is racism in racial comfort, virtually 24-7. So let me just pause there. I am comfortable in a racist society as a white person. So we are not going to get where we need to go from a place of white comfort. And I, I wonder why white people think we could address racism and remain comfortable. And it, it functions as a kind of entitlement. I come to feel entitled to be comfortable. And so there's been some kind of breach in the social contract here if if uh, I am caused to be uncomfortable. Right. And, and so we just we have to change the way we understand it. And I so appreciate uh, Chaparac. Um, Perfect. <laughs> your point there, right? I, I cannot tell you how many times I have uh, you know, seen some YouTube video that, you know, can you believe Robin D'Angelo says all white people are racist? And I always wanted to say, do something for me. Just take a moment to actually reflect on how do you define a racist? I think mm-hmm. white people rarely think critically about what that is. And I think most of the definition is going to come down to individuals who consciously don't like people based on race and intentionally want to hurt them. You, you couldn't come up with a better way to protect systemic racism than that, that really incredibly simplistic understanding, which guarantees defensiveness and guarantees that most white people will exempt themselves from any part of the problem. Right. Because, you know, I'm really clear I have perpetrated racism across my life. And I'm also really clear not once was it intentional or, or, or conscious, but it still um, created harm. So I make a provocative claim in white fragility, which is I think white progressives like you and I, Deborah, <laughs> likely cause the most daily harm across race. And I get asked about that a lot. And so nice racism is really answering that question. How do folks like us 
identify as feminist. I proudly identify as an angry feminist <laughs> uh, and have for most of my life. So, you know, how do we do that? Because odds are, Nova, you can check me if I'm wrong here, you're probably not hanging out with white nationalists. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but to say that, there is a, and, and, I, and I say this with, with full consciousness, there is an element of me that would prefer mm-hmm. to deal with a white nationalist because I know where I stand. I yeah. can create boundaries. I can create measures to avoid that. But day in, day out, dealing with it from friends, co-workers, people in the street, it's, very diff- it's a very different dynamic. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that and, and, and us hearing that because that's really consistent with what I have heard from Black people. Like, I know where you're coming from. It's on the table. Um, but it's so much more insidious and harder to get your hands on. So I was thinking about, Deborah, the question that just has never failed me in trying to unpack this is not, is this good or bad, right or wrong, but how does it function? So how does our guilt uh, and our collective shame end up functioning, regardless of what's um, driving it, if it functions to have us avoid or be really careful or focus on ourselves, it's functioning to uphold racism. So we're going to, we have to push through it. So when we say, oh, I'm not sure I want to have that conversation in the office, it's going to upset people, or maybe we should do this a bit more tactfully, or (laughs) maybe we should do this sans confrontation or whatever. What we're doing is we're, do you mean we're sort of putting comfort, the comfort of white people over the humanity of black people? Oh, 100%. definitely. And, and then we come up with these guidelines for the conversation, which are, are really um, assume a shared experience in the room and don't account for power. Right. So assume good intentions. Right. <laughs> which basically means assume that I'm not racist, uh, even as I say and do those racist things. Right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Nova, what are the things, when you say in some ways you'd rather deal with a white nationalist which you, because you know what their value set is and you know what they say and what they stand for, what are the things you're experiencing with white liberal people that are more insidious and more difficult to deal with? Can you give us any examples? To summarise, it's the lack of honesty and the lack of integrity. Words are not matching behaviour. Um, and that's very difficult to be around. If you say you're wanting to be anti-racist or you're wanting to learn how to reduce causing racial harm but you're continuing to perpetuate racial harm or you cannot receive feedback on racism when somebody tells you that you you are causing me harm right now please stop and then it becomes about blaming and bullying and we're the problem we're the issue we're being oversensitive it's explained away it's minimized it's passed away as a joke um so i think that's the real issue it's not that we don't expect there to be racist comments or or racist behavior or for people to be perfect individuals but perfection is a function of white supremacy as far as I'm concerned it's not real but it's that there is some kind of honesty and integrity so that 
when you do, not if, when you do or say something that has caused racial harm, especially to people you're in relationship with, there is accountability for it. And that's the missing component. And it doesn't matter whether I'm having this conversation with peers who think they're exempt from doing this work because of their proximity to me, or whether I'm working within an organization who identifies as a progressive organization, and then I go in and I discover a lot of systemic racism. It's the same thing. It's denial. Suddenly, I've got no credibility. It's explained away. And and like we won't address racism if we cannot accept it when it shows up, even in ourselves. So it's a sort of, it's a saying one thing and doing another. And then when, oh, hold on, you've done another is pointed out, denying that or explaining that way. Yes. Is this something you identify with, Shaprak, that as a, a, a Middle Eastern British woman in comedy? I do. Absolutely, I do. And also I want to make the point that um, I remember when I went to university, first friend I made there was called Natalia and we're still good friends and she is black. And f- despite the fact that I went to school with lots of black kids, as an adult, Natalia was the first that I had um, hung out with and I didn't know how she was treated. I hadn't experienced what she experienced. Going nightclubbing in Southampton and missing our train and me saying, let's just get a cab and she very sweetly and almost apologetically said, I, we can't. I was like, why? And she was like, well, because I'm, I'm black. I didn't know that. I didn't what, know that. A cab so wouldn't stop. A cab wouldn't stop. And also, I would go into a shop and everyone would be friendly to me. Oh, hello, you've come from London. I'd go in the shop with her and they would get up and follow us around. If you're not white, you don't all have the same experiences even within my own family I have fairer skinned members of my family who don't know what their darker skinned children go through and also at my you know um Deborah just talk about internalized racism at my school in the 80s that was pretty much a third white third black third Asian as a child I saw how the black children were their expectations of them um, wasn't as high as the white children. And this year, I had a chance meeting with an old teacher of mine at that school. And he said, Chaparette, do you remember me? And I instantly said, it's you. And I said, that school messed me up. And he said, I know. Would you like to meet for a coffee? So I met my old school teacher for a coffee. And all of those things I felt as a child, he confirmed he confirmed that the institutionalized racism at the school that I went to, which by the by was the same school as um, Steve McQueen. He was a couple of years older than me. He's talked about this school in interviews and he has got an apology for the institutionalized racism at that school. And they stopped him doing art and he went on to win the Turner Prize. And this teacher, this white teacher sat with me and said, you didn't fail at school because your parents were foreign and didn't know the ropes or because you had dyslexia and ADHD. You failed at school because we let children of colour down. And it was possibly one of the most powerful moments of my life to hear that. And it makes me weep when I think that at 13, I saw what was going on, but we didn't have the language 
to complain. We didn't have the empowerment to complain when a teacher said, I'm going to make you work like the N-word. And I remember a black boy said, work like a what, miss? And she said, work like the N-word. It's an English expression. None of us kids complained. And that stayed with me. And so to be, even now at my age, I'm undoing a lot. And to hear people talk uh, in, in academic terms about something that I've really felt is mind-blowing to me because I'm only really just starting to unravel just how much internalized racism I, I have carried uh, because these things weren't verbalized. Mm. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's an extraordinary uh, uh, piece that you've just told us there, Shabrak. And it's, it's, it, it, I think, again, demonstrates like how, you know, you aren't very old, how recently a lot of changes have been made. I've, I've had to read a book set in the 80s for some work, set and written in the 80s. And all I can say is, thank God, political correctness went mad mm. because bloody hell was it awful. In the 80s, in the 80s, it was so bad. And you're just look, reading it, you know, on every level, you know, it's racism, it's sexism, it's homophobia, it's, it's you know, flat out misogyny. It's just horrifying. And you're reading it going, oh, my God, is this... Is this what it was? And, you know, and, and the idea that it's just been righted in a couple of decades and mm. we're fine now. Yeah. Um, clearly we're not. And made um, you feel that we, Im- uh, we were imagining it. That's yeah. the real thing. And when I heard from the horse's mouth the policy that they had in place by actively, I, I feel quite protective of him because um, he shared this with me and the two of us together want to find a way to express what happened. But Word for word, what he told me, the policies that actively held back um, children of colour, because then if they started to do well, then more would come and they'd get known as the the, the black school. Oh, my God. Oh Those my were God, the word horrible. for word what happened to this young teacher in the 80s who he himself was powerless That's back then shocking. to do anything. What you're describing, um, Shaparak, is what I describe as the birthplace of racism, which is anti-blackness and also systemic racism, when racist behaviour becomes normalised in systems, in law, in schools, in healthcare, in institutions. And that is exactly what this work is trying to um, dissect and address. Can I ask, which is what I always want to ask on the podcast, uh, Robin, what can we do? I am aware that early on, one of the first things you write about in your book is white people going, educate me, what can I do from my place of just needing to be spoon fed it? So I, I'm super aware of that. But our listeners are very active and want to do stuff. What can we do? Is it just simply getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and rather than shrugging off the shame as we are want to do as human beings and just going everything's fine I'm fine now I'm fine I'm fine is it that are there other things that we should actively be doing if seeing it and even you know being able to look at it and and build your capacity doesn't lead to action that changes those policies and practices that change a culture in which I mean I was struck Shaparak when you said he couldn't do anything about it. And I'm assuming he's a white man. 
you know, so I, I just kind of want to hold that a little bit. I'm, I'm not so sure he couldn't. And I get that that there is more cultural space now for him to challenge it. But I don't want to just let it stand that he absolutely couldn't do anything about it because we didn't get the cultural space we have if people didn't start taking courageous stands. But all of those things that have led to a moment where we can begin to talk about policies and practices and um, I don't think we'll change policies and practices if we don't change consciousness. Um, so they, they have to go together, right? People are not institutions, but institutions are made up of people. So I think it has to start with that self-awareness, that's that being um, willing to look at how you have been shaped by anti-Blackness and systemic racism. My racism doesn't look like a white nationalist. I'm not a white nationalist but it looks like something. And I am not guilty for having been socialized into racism, but I am responsible now for the effect of having been the outcome, right? So those kind of questions, what does it look like in my life and what might I do to interrupt that and to, to support other white people in interrupting that? And, but of course, I think uh, Nova could also <laughs> quite powerfully answer that question. What would you like to see from white people? Hmm, honesty. <laughs> um, honesty. Like we that racism is built on so many lies. We have to start being honest about how it shows up in ourselves and others and be able to withstand being given feedback on it so that we can address and agitate and and you know leverage change in an intentional and meaningful way. And we can't do that if we're in this state of denial because we just shut down and stop listening. And when people ask me, you know, what can I do to help? My, my answer will always be unlearn your racism, unlearn what has been learned because it, it, it's learned behavior. It can be unlearned, but there has to be, again, an honesty, a willingness, a vulnerability. Um, and you have to be. You have to be courageous enough to be curious about what you're going to find when you start this journey. And I think that has to start with honesty and acceptance. I, I Somebody likened this process to the 12-step program, the first step of the 12-step program, in terms of we cannot make any meaningful steps forward until we accept that there is a problem. And I found that really quite powerful. Mm. I'm adopted and I listened to a lecture about adoption recently and the expert said there's a Chinese proverb that says the beginning of wisdom is calling something by its right name. Mm. and he said, we don't say, what we need to say is relinquishment and adoption. And we don't want to say the part that might be sad or difficult or traumatic. So we just go, you're adopted, you're special. And we don't say you were relinquished, you were given away. And mm. you cannot heal unless you will face the trauma. Mm. And I think this is the same thing. We want to use a lot of coded words around it. And we, white people want to spend a lot of time explaining why they're not racist. And we won't call it by its name. We won't say, mm. but the socioeconomic disposition people have inherited means that white people inherently benefit. And also there's just so much stuff in our culture that we've learned and we're socially conditioned for. So our best intentions aside, it's still sitting there right there on the table. And and we, if we won't call it by its right name, there's nothing we get, we're going to be able to do about it. And I think feminists have such a powerful way in. White feminists have such a potentially uh, powerful way in uh, Unfortunately, we all too often use it as a way out 
Um, but if you understand, and I'm just going to say, there is no man who is not shaped by patriarchy. Nobody mm-hmm. misses the message that it's better to be a boy than a girl. You can resist the message. You can um, disagree with the message, but you have to resist the message because it's ubiquitous. Um, no man is outside of patriarchy. No woman is either, right? We live in patriarchy. And if you understand that, then you understand we live in white supremacy. Um, Harvey Weinstein is my example. Uh, He was married to a woman. He might've had daughters. He didn't assault every woman he came in contact with, likely. Um, But his basic orientation to the world was misogyny. And I'm sure if I was hanging out with him, I would feel it. Uh, and yet I can imagine him using, well, Robin D'Angelo is a friend of mine and she's a woman, so I'm not sexist. Mm-hmm. Like well, that wouldn't fly um, for, I think, most feminists. We would understand that uh, that's not possible. And yet it's so hard for us to make that same move when it comes to racism. Yeah, I think that's a great empathy pathway in. I sometimes think women find it easier than men to, not hashtag not all women, hashtag not all men, obviously. But we have that initial empathy pathway <laughs> that you can actually, if you, exactly what you've just done, you build that structure and you go, yeah, well, I can see it there. Well, then can you see it here? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you don't want to be Harvey Weinstein um, perpetuating something and saying she asked for it, you know. Those are terms that, uh, that this one day I got very frustrated because I noticed that um, on the radio, pretty much every non-white person who had a show commissioned uh, it was either a show about their not whiteness or it was political. And that was something that in the comedy world very early on was made clear to me when I submitted a script and the feedback came back as uh, really enjoyed your script about being a life model. But we think our audiences will be interested to know about your Iranian heritage. So it was communicated to me at the age of 24 that if you want a career in show business, this is a hook to hang yourself on because we've got white people to do all the other quirky stuff, the more mainstream stuff, but this is what we'd like for you. And these people were regarded as the liberals and the progressives. And in 20 years of comedy, I didn't see a change. And I bought a puppy and I took my puppy and I went to the offices of a bigwig commissioner and I explained how I felt. And she was extremely defensive. And I had to say, this is just imagine you're a bloke and I'm talking to you about the Me Too movement. Like you're going to feel a bit uncomfortable and I don't want to feel like I'm accusing good people of doing bad stuff. But this is the reality and it's still affecting non-white comics now. And we don't become family. We don't become anchors. We don't become part of the furniture and we would like to be. We are on a conveyor belt. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. And because it's show business, it's hard. I found it hard to talk about because it, you know, it sounds like you're going, but I want my career to go better than it is. But then I thought I'm at an age now where I'm fine and I can talk about the newer people coming up. And I want to see which one of them is going to be hosting, anchoring a show rather than, and here's somebody who's from this background. And that is painfully slow to change, painfully mm-hmm. slow. Did When you compared it to the Me Too movement, was she more open? She did get that. I, but, you know, I, I felt like I had to tread so carefully. 
I don't want her. She actually bought the head of their PR to the meeting. I was like, wow, this is just a cup of tea. Mm. Um, and I, I bought the most disarming thing in the world with me, which was, I was gonna say, uh, does, a puppy. Did the puppy play in? Did you, you, were you able to use <laughs> the, the puppy to build a bridge? <laughs> well, it was a blonde puppy, a golden oh. retriever. So I thought, you know, we yeah. have common ground. I have a, you know, uh, a very privileged dog here. Um, and I had to tiptoe around it. And I really felt, and I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. This wasn't something that I told other comics that I was going to do. I just quietly went and said to a mate, all these non-white comics that you have commissioned, let them carry, like, let them carry on because that's not what happened to my generation. Mm. And now I have nothing to lose. Now I'm fine, mm. you know, but this is still happening. Mm. Let us talk oh. about life modeling. Let us talk about yeah. other experiences in our life that aren't to do with our skin hue in comedy. We're not mm. academics. We're comics. Let mm. us be silly. Mm. Let us well, be let part us of be, the gang. Let us be human yeah. first. Mm. And that's the thing is I feel as if if you are not of the most homogenized group in comedy is the thing I know about and television writing, if you are not of the most homogenized group, your identity comes first and your humanity comes second. So again, as an empathy pathway and it's nowhere near as bad, obviously, but I will be asked to write for women things, for lady parts, for, you know, it, 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 I'm not going to be allowed to write a drama about Mark Twain or ever. Ever, 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 ever. It just would never go to a woman. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. I've got friends who very recently, like in the last year, been told more of your ethnically diverse mother in this place so that we have a funny accent, basically. That's what mm. they want. They still want that. And it's it's not changing. That's not changing. And it's still frustrating women of colour and uh, ethnically diverse backgrounds. And I'm sure men too. Um Nova, did anything Shaparak say there chime with you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, ultimately, racism has caused and continues to cause so much dehumanisation. What we're doing in anti-racism is, is rehumanising one another. And, and that starts from, you know, Shaparak deciding to reclaim her name and also part of her humanity by being called and being addressed by the name that her parents gave her. There is so much, you mentioned earlier about this, so much um, we have to call something by its name. And that just feeds into so many different areas with this around claiming our humanity, belonging, um, being better citizens and humans to one another. And being able to name things as they are, to be able to name racism when it shows up, to be able to be honest and be able to name about there's something that comes up with my students who who have worked with me and then have gone on to start teaching anti-racism. And they feel very confronted when money is then exchanged. Should I be taking this money? Um, is it my place? And one of the things I say to them is, because on the flip side of that is I'm often, I often have to jump hoops to prove credibility, to prove validity, to prove worth around my expertise, whereas they are automatically seen as right and trustworthy and right. And I'm like, but that's the racism. So it's very, very important that we're able to name that as well, to be able to name when we find it easier to learn from somebody who looks like us, 
who is white than somebody who is black or brown. And so I think it's honesty um, because that rehumanizes the whole experience for me. Mm. Oh, honesty. It's so, I think a lot of people still don't get it and they honestly think, I've done nothing wrong, you're arguing with the past, et cetera, et cetera. And the ones that do get it, it's it's very difficult to be honest. It's a challenge and, and it's something that we have to keep working towards. It's all of this is about our all of our humanity. It's all of us, right? My uh, Buddhist teacher, Angel Kyoda Williams, says something along the lines of our liberation is bound up in one another's and there's lots of different variations of that in African proverbs. And in terms of black people and other people of colour who may participate, it has a different function because that's often as a form of self-preservation in terms of changing name, in terms of making yourself smaller. So to avoid being called the angry black woman or being caused harm. So it functions in a different way in terms of survival and assimilation. But ultimately, yes, it, it does reproduce it. And so we, we're all caught up in this in some way. And if I have to interrogate my internalised racism, then there's absolutely no way that people who are racialized as white have come away unscathed. Robin, I know sometimes there is a, a criticism levelled at you that you are a white person centering yourself in this space and is this your place to talk about this? And I thought what you said in your book, Nice Racism, was interesting on this. Could you speak to that a little bit? It brings up Audre Lorde's powerful quote of the master's tools where she says, how do you dismantle the master's house when you only have the master's tools? There, there are so many tensions in this work and there are so many both ends. So I recognize that I center whiteness in my work, which is intended to decenter whiteness. <laughs> so in a curious way, of course, whiteness stays centered by being unmarked and unnamed. It's just the default by which everything else is measured. And so to decenter it, you have to expose it, right? Rather than support it and uphold it. Um, that's what I seek to do. I seek to do it from the particular position I'm in. It is only one piece of it. But um, there was something you said in the opening, Deborah, where I think traditionally we ex white people expect that if we're going to talk about racism, we're going to learn all about Nova's experience. So let's just sit back like we're we're outside of this. It occurs in a vacuum rather than it is a relationship that we are in and we play a profound part, <laughs> a foundational part in that relationship. And there's a way that I can speak to it, again, as an insider. It can never be the only way that we come to learn. I don't think white people can ever truly understand racism without listening to black people and other people of color. But we can't only listen, which then reinforces this, this idea that we're innocent of race. Right. And continually puts all of that burden. I see it as a form of colonialism. I will sit back and receive the fruits of your labor. You will open your chest and your guts and show me your pain so I can learn and be moved, hopefully, by it. Um, you know, hand me the fruits of all that labor. I will inspect the fruits and say, well, yes, I think this one and I think this one, but I don't think this one. Right. Like that dynamic is not OK. <laughs> Um, and so I don't know that there's any clean way to do this. We're in it. 
Um, I, I try to do what I do with integrity, with acknowledging those tensions. But for me to not use this position to challenge racism is to really be white. And I'd like to be a little less white in the ways that being white is oppressive. Nova and Robin, I always ask the same thing at the end, and I'm going to put this to you, Shaparak, as well. Is there anything you came to say you didn't get to say, or is there anything you would like to ask one of the other guests? So much. I mean, how long do we have <laughs> that I would like to ask <laughs> the other guests? What, what would you like to ask, Shaparak? Um, where you come from, where, where you speak from, is from a very academic point of view. So when the word white privilege began to be used, the reaction to it was uh, quite, um, what, what's the word, negative, because it was taken to mean by people who didn't um, understand the academic meaning of it to just mean as long as you're white, you're guaranteed to have a better life than any person who isn't white. But of course, that isn't what it means. So how do you think that we can take this discussion out of academia? Because it is at the moment quite a, is highbrow the right word? Um, Perhaps it is for me, because I've got four GCSEs. But even I've had that when people started using the word privilege, I didn't know what it meant. And I was too scared to ask and I had to like quietly go and find out because I'm not an academic. So what's the plan? How are we going to take this to everybody and not need them to, you know, not need a big pile of books reading material in order to get it? That's a good question. Are we in a bubble where we sit around and talk in very academic language to each other? And Thank you for we... putting my question more concise. No, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm just adding, <laughs> no, I'm adding no. to it. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, putting words in your mouth. I'm just adding to it. I, like, how do we? It is, it is a problem sometimes that we sit around in sort of liberal metropolitan enclaves, speaking in words with lots of syllables, and agreeing with each other. How because do we make it accessible and portable? May I just quickly tell you why this really matters to me? Because. Um, in my book, Kissing Emma, Emma is a white working class girl and she's talking to her, her friend who is a Somalian refugee and she's telling her Somalian friend, you have no idea what it's like to have um, no dad sleep on your grandmother's sofa and she sees her Somalian friend who has a nice council flat and mum and dad all there for her. My Emma won't doesn't get white privilege and they're only 16 and you know I I try and sort of point out that that message isn't filtering through everyone. Nova any ideas? It's a big question and I want to try and answer succinctly (laughs) so bear with it you know there was a misunderstanding of what the term white privilege means the the way I, I have come to understand it is from a uh, a civil rights activist called um, Theodore W. Allen in the 1960s. And it was coined by him after a 40-year analysis that the original term was actually called white skin privilege. 
And you're looking back through this era and around the times lynchings were common practice. And in terms of what was recorded, and many weren't, over 70% of people who were lynched were African-Americans. And so he was observing this in this time. So obviously, you could say that, yeah, there is a group of people who has a societal advantage right now, and they're not being lynched. And there is a group of people who are. And so it doesn't suggest that anyone who, anyone who is not Black or African-American or other people of colour aren't experiencing difficulty, poverty, um, discrimination, hardship. It just means that they are not implicated and dehumanized because of the color of their skin. So there is a lack of understanding about what it actually means and also a lack of desire and curiosity to find out. But in terms of, you know, certainly how I approach The Good Ally is I try to bring it back to humanness. And I make a point of saying I do not approach this from an academic standpoint. I will use academia to back up my sources but I'm going in with human stories, with my stories, with my experience, with interviews that I've done, with, with evidence. And I'm starting from there and saying, look, we've got all this academia. And at times we love academia and we celebrate it and we trust in its validity and its credibility. And yet we are still experiencing racism. So it needs a multi-pronged approach. And I think humanizing it is one of those things. And also not ignoring the data and the evidence and the academia that is already there and has been there for so long. Mm. Any words on accessibility, Robin? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, my writing is accessible, so I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> the original article was an academic article and I turned it into a book and went to a mainstream press precisely to make it accessible. But I would ask that you, Emma, to think about it as the absence of struggle in a major area of life in which other people are struggling. She is struggling with classism. She is not also struggling with racism. And I grew up in poverty, I uh, homelessness, foster care. I didn't go to academia until I was in my 30s. And I still always knew I was white and I always knew it was better to be white um, and I, I would ask Emma to look me in the eyes and say to be poor and white is the same as to be poor and black, because if she navigates classism and and attains middle class status, she will not uh, be dealing with racism. But her friend will always be dealing with racism, just like Barack Obama could be the most powerful person in the world and experience racism that was jaw dropping and. I would just say, think about the right to vote. Obviously, there were men on board or women wouldn't have the right to vote. But they still benefited from a system that disenfranchised half the population that they didn't have to compete with. Even a minor <laughs> competing for the scraps didn't have to compete with women also needing to compete with us for the scraps. So that would be my non-academic <laughs> way to speak to yeah, this idea that that somehow it means white people don't suffer or face barriers. Of course we do, but not that one. And not facing that one impacts the outcome of our efforts addressing the, the barriers we do face. Robin, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? Um, it's not just a matter of being uncomfortable it serves us not to have this conversation. Our discomfort is not benign or innocent. 
it functions quite powerfully to protect our position. Um, so I should just have to repeat that. It serves us to be uncomfortable and to avoid these conversations. There is a consequence to that. And I would appeal to any white feminist, when you feel defensive about any charge of racism, change the roles in your head and imagine that you just told a man something similar and he's reacting the way you are and it will be clear to you. So when white people say they need to feel safe, in order to talk about racism, I want you to imagine men saying, well, we don't feel safe talking to you about femicide, rape, and sexual assault. I know what I would say. There'd be two words, and I, you haven't, um, nobody has used these words on this show yet, so I'm not going to say it. But, you know, I'd be like, please, you are perfectly safe. That's an illegitimate term to come out of your mouth in this conversation. Um, Nova, anything you came to say you didn't get to say? Or anything you want to ask? Hmm. This isn't about attacking anyone's identity. And I understand that it can feel like that's what anti-racism work is. But we have such an opportunity. We have an opportunity to create seismic change and be better citizens of the world to one another. And this is an invitation. I say it. Look, I, I, I don't have a choice. I can't peel off my skin. For, for people who are racialized as white, you have a choice. There is an invitation. You can be human to get it wrong, to be clumsy, to be uncomfortable and be part of a powerful part of the solution. Or you can center on getting it wrong and feeling guilty. There is a choice. And I think if we want better for each other, one another, our shared humanity, then, you know, we have to choose well. Robin, can you tell us about your book? Where can we get it? What's it um, called? It, is, it has been published in the UK. So Penguin, I, I think it should be fairly easy to get online. I don't know in the UK, but I would um, certainly encourage people to buy from Black-owned independent bookstores. Uh, it, it's readily available. Great. And it's called, and there's, you've got two books. The first one was White Fragility, which many Why people Why it's do. so hard for yeah. white people to talk about racism. And that and that's, the many people one is, will have already read that, but the new one is yeah. Nice Racism. Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. Shaparit Cassandi, you have a new book out. It's still under the name Shappy Cassandi because you didn't quite get to the cover in time. It's called Kissing Emma. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Kissing Emma is a book aimed at the young adult reader. So sort of age 12 up. And it's very loosely based on the story of Emma Hamilton, the love of Horatio Nelson's life. So Emma Hamilton came from a very uh, poor, very working class background uh, in Georgian days. And the way that she avoided destitution was to um, be with men who were rich and could look after her. My Emma is slap bang in the modern day. And she, her background in terms of class and poverty is the same as Emma Hamilton's. So I've tried to sort of make amends and see actually what a woman of a similar class can do today in order not to become destitute. And do we still, um, and, and how we still have these uh, restrictions around um, people who are from uh, much poorer backgrounds in terms of money and 
education and cultural capital. So my Emma doesn't have the dark end that uh, the real Emma Hamilton did, partly because it's for a, a younger audience and they kept telling me to take the really dark bits out. <laughs> I look forward to reading it. I very much enjoyed your last book and I look forward to reading this one. Thank you. Nova, tell us about your book. Thank you. It's called The Good Ally, an anti-racism journey from bystander to change maker. And it takes people on a journey to understand what racism looks like in society and in themselves, how to address shame and to become a powerful weapon for change. I'm loving all of these books and excited to read all of them. I've already read some of Nice Racism, but I can't wait to read yours as well, Shaparak and Nova. Boomy Thomas, hello. Hello, Deborah. How are you? Boomy is a Scottish-Nigerian jazz folk soul singer, songwriter and guitarist and friend of the podcast... Um, she's joining us today uh, to sing us out. Bumi, what are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing you a song called Colours of a Rainbow. Colours of the Rainbow. Yes. Uh, great. I can't wait. Hello, everyone. Hiya. Hi. Hey. Hey. It's Hi. so lovely to meet you all. I've been uh, just soaking in and absorbing all the wisdom and perspectives. And um, I'm so I'm always, it's always wonderful to to hear the transformative um, visions for real change. And um, I appreciate all of your energy and your insights. Uh, this song is called Colors of a Rainbow. Come off a new found 
Boomy Thomas's full back catalogue right now. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Chaparrette Cassandi, and very special guests Nova Reed, Robin D'Angelo, and Boomy Thomas. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Zielinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Craftman, Gina DCO, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. thank you so much robin and nova it was so lovely to have you on you were fantastic guests it was such a stimulating conversation how is what shappy's i just nearly called you by your old name shappy i'm so sorry like i'm miss it's what's the version of misgendering that's misnaming (laughs) misnomering you it's fine it's misnomering you (laughs) nova what um what did did anything that Chaparak was saying there identify with you, um, chime with you? Did I, I'm going to say that again as a pickup? Sorry. Um, how many ways can I fuck up this sentence? Um, Nova, <laughs> Tom's doing editing scissors in his miming. Um, Nova, did anything Chaparak say there? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. I'm with you. Yeah, absolutely. The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.